turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome to Colorado Issues. I'm your host, David Van Zetter. Today we're going to be talking about mental health. It's a topic that affects millions of people nationally, yet it seems to still be a bit taboo when bringing up the topic. Since May is Mental Health Awareness Month, we're going to delve right into this important subject. So joining me today is Dr. Charles Ozeroff. Dr. Welcome. Thank you. Now, before we get into our topic today, just give us a quick rundown on your background. Well, I've recently moved to uh, the Denver area about six months ago. I worked about 35 years in Baltimore, Maryland, as a child and adolescent psychiatrist, as an adult psychiatrist in a wide variety of settings. Okay, well, welcome to Denver, first of all. We're glad you're here. Thank you. We'll have to get you to become a Broncos fan and just let go of the Ravens. <laughs> It's, that's in the past now. Okay, so yeah, Ravens history definitely. That's it. Well, it's a virus. Like you know, you can't help yourself. Eventually, you'll just become a Broncos fan, so, <laughs> for good or bad. Let me ask you: Do you think that the subject of mental health is finally coming to the forefront? I mean, after so many years of kind of hush hush treatment. Well, not enough. I think. I think there's still, unfortunately, some stigma attached, and. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to be a little bold here to, to help our readers accept that mental, mental illness really is something that we all should be comfortable talking about. And I'll share that uh, my brother, who is uh, now deceased, but he suffered from schizophrenia for, for many years. And so I, I have sort of watched the uh, cultural response, as it were, to, to mental illness, both as a professional and as a family member. And I do think there's been progress, but uh, unfortunately, I think there's still a lot of stigma and people tend to not have the information they need about the different kinds of mental illnesses and how to help somebody if you think they have a problem, a family member, a neighbor. I think it still is problematic. What's the most common misconception about mental health that you have to overcome as, as a psychiatrist? I think that people feel ashamed that it is it is some sort of weakness, either a moral weakness or a character weakness, that one is supposed to, to tough it out if one is depressed, tough it out if one is anxious, tough it out as one, if one is suffering. You know, and particularly with substance abuse, I think there, there's such uh, shame associated with it. People will, will hide their drinking. Now, even with the elderly, I know since I've moved here and been working with the New West uh, primary care physicians and seeing so many uh, elderly patients, it's surprising that others will think poorly of them or judge them as having a moral defect or a character defect if they're depressed, if they're unhappy, if they're anxious, and particularly if they're using and abusing substances. But what we know is that most mental illness has a biological component. Even if it's reactive, for example, in, in the elderly population, even if there have been significant changes in the person's life, they've retired or their family's moved away, perhaps they've lost a pet or the neighborhood has changed. Even though that may begin as uh, sadness and loneliness, that can turn into depression that really needs medical treatment. And, you know, you mentioned that there's a, a physical component. So a lot of people don't associate the mental illness with it being a sickness that's treatable. 
with you know in a lot of cases with medication. But how do you educate people, relatives, family members, friends who uh, suspect that there's something wrong with a friend or a relative, and, and instead of just you know saying just to cheer up, what can they do? Well, what's the best approach if you're if you're suspecting somebody has mental illness and want to get them some treatment? Right, and and you may not you know in your own mind you may not be calling it mental illness, but if if you notice that somebody's unhappy or they're socially withdrawn, they're not engaging in their activities or they're so anxious that they're not able to do things that they normally could or enjoy what they could. The thing to do is to really point out your observations. People want help. Even if they're seeming defensive, they want help. And the best way to approach somebody, whether it's a friend or a relative, is to not come at them with judgments, but to sit down with them at a a time when it's comfortable for you and comfortable for them and share your observations and ask them to reflect on you know, what you've pointed out to them, and, you know, most likely you'll begin to hear what the problem is, you know, as they see it, and then you can decide together. Of course, I would offer, you know, guidance at that point as to who the two of you can turn to to find resources. The primary care physician, particularly a New West physician, they are an excellent resource for assessing the problem, you know, up front and referring as needed to whatever resources or whatever treatment might be might be necessary. I also wanted to mention that uh, there is a, a Colorado helpline through the National Alliance of Mental Illness, 303-321-3104. And that line, they can give you resources and, and places to call. And it's not a crisis line, but it, it is a resource line. So there's, there's a lot of ways to get the help that you need once you have aligned yourself with the person who is having difficulty. Let's have that phone number just one more time because I'm sure people weren't quite ready to write down when you said it, so let's give it again. Sure. 303-321-3104. Great. Depression, we were talking about it just a moment ago, it seems to be almost an epidemic, especially among teens. What do you attribute to that increase? Hmm. Well, that's a good question. I, I hadn't given it much thought. I think depression has been a constant in society uh, ever since there was society. And as the pressures and demands of society change, I think, you know, perhaps the incidence of depression changes as well. But what's important, I think, to recognize is that anyone could be depressed. Statistically speaking, in the, the older population, age 55 or older, we estimate that perhaps 20% may experience some type of mental health issue, and certainly depression is very common. In that age group. Children are not immune to depression. Teenagers certainly have a lot of stress, sort of developmentally based stress that they have to uh, cope with and they can become depressed. So it's important to, again, like you had asked before, what do you do if you are worried that somebody's depressed? Share your observations, see what they think about what you've said. And, you know, if you're in a situation or you're talking to somebody where where safety is an issue or you think safety is an issue, again, I would talk with the primary care physician or the pediatrician, a uh, medical professional that is already working with that individual and share your concerns because, again, the New West physicians were quite practiced at what do we do if somebody is is suffering or if safety is an issue. And further into the the 
realm of depression. Uh, among teens, it seems like suicide is, is shot through the roof in, in epidemic proportions. What do you attribute to that as far as you know, bullying at school and troubles at home, social media? Is there, is there a, a, a link to social media and bullying and all that with, with those issues? In terms of on a societal scale, but what I have experienced in my practice is that you know, there are things that do contribute to uh, a teen's self-esteem uh, falling. And it's the same, I think, for, for any of us. Uh, if an adult is being bullied by a superior at work or a teen is being bullied by a peer or somebody in the family is being bullied by uh, a parent who has an alcohol problem, I mean, that kind of stress creates a certain anxiety in the individual and self-esteem may fall and depression may be as a result. Again, what I think is really most important is for every one of us to trust our instincts and to trust that if somebody we know and we love and we care about is suffering, whatever it appears to be, whatever appears to be the cause, that we approach them and we let them know that help is available, that, that we do care, that there are professionals who are experienced in helping people with all kinds of problems. I, I venture to say with it, every type of problem, that there's no problem as far as mental health that, that can't be treated. And, and uh, we generally do pretty well with that there's no problem that, that um, shouldn't be, that you shouldn't seek help for. And as I mentioned uh, in my opening remarks, it's Mental Health Awareness Month. And, you know, I'm looking at the the history of that. It's, it's gone back, uh, the first Mental Health Awareness Month, surprisingly, was 1949. And I don't think it's something that most people are commonly aware of. So from in your profession, what does that mean uh, as far as what are you doing as a profession uh, during that month to promote mental health? Well, radio interviews like this, of course, and um, we're out there in the community promoting the importance of recognizing that mental health is a common problem and that trying to do our best to destigmatize the concept or the issue the thought that somebody might have a mental health problem mm -hmm. is is there like, uh, something online in particular where somebody if maybe they suspect that they're having issues that there's like a you know a checklist of if you if you you know if you if you scored a certain if you answered nine out of ten, you, you you're depressed, or you should get looked at for depression, something like that. So we're somewhere where people can go, you know, in private and be comfortable with uh, with with that kind of a thing. Well, sure. There's uh, for depression, particularly the patient health questionnaire. Uh, we call it a PHQ-9. It's available free on the internet, and that can be a helpful guide, both for the questions to ask somebody if you are concerned that they're depressed, and a way to assess how serious the situation, you know, might be. Okay. Also in that uh, area of, of mental health, you know, I think uh, the general public, if somebody suspects that they may be suffering from a mental illness, is, is thinking, oh, man, they're just going to throw me on antidepressants and I'm going to walk around like a zombie with that. I don't want to do that. Let's dispel that myth. What's what's the, the real story there? Well, I'm really glad you'd asked. Um, well, first off, for the right person, antidepressants are life-saving. We, we know that. The research shows that. Many people don't need antidepressants, and there are many other approaches, uh, lifestyle changes. People who are isolated and alone 
need to be involved in, in activities with other people. Exercise, obviously, is very important. And I would say uh, one thing for, for whoever's listening, what I have found that the most important symptom that needs to be addressed sort of across the board is insomnia or trouble sleeping. And sometimes just helping somebody figure out why they're having trouble sleeping and, and solving the sleep problem, as it were, that alleviates the depression. So depression is a, it's a broad category. There's uh, many reasons people are depressed, and there are many different approaches to treating the depression. Antidepressants are, are not the answer for everyone, but at the same time, I think there's been some hysteria over the years about antidepressants not being good for anybody and causing all kinds of harm. What's important is to work with somebody who has experience prescribing these medications and to ask questions. I think my experience has been that patients that feel comfortable being direct with their physicians, asking questions, reading on the internet or going to the library, or talking to people they know who have been on medication, that that can really help inform them as to the questions that they want to ask. And I really like it when a patient comes in and challenges me and has questions and says, well, what about this and what about that? Because that makes me think about it again, and then we can talk about it and make sure that the treatment matches what the patient is comfortable with. It's kind of funny that you mentioned that because on the, the non-mental health side of, of medicine, I was chatting with my physician, and she absolutely... <laughs> hates it when people come in with their WebMD diagnosis. I mean, it's, it's either a cold or cancer, you know. <laughs> so I'm really glad to hear that you're encouraging your patients to, to do some research and come in prepared with questions. And, you know, and maybe they think they've nailed their diagnosis and you'll dispel that, but at least they're, they're coming in uh, and asking the right questions. So I want to go back to yeah. something you mentioned that I think is, is of paramount importance, and that's the sleep disorders, which is also, I think, epidemic uh, in this country. And, and I don't think people understand, with, with all the, the electronic advances in our cell phones and our inter Internet and a gazillion television stations, people are watching television or doing some sort of electronic stimulation right up until they go to sleep, and they're getting terrible sleep because of it. They're they need to have some downtime. Talk about that a little bit. Sure, sure. Well, what I, what I recommend is uh, to go online and Google sleep hygiene checklist. And there's many of them out there, and they're not proprietary. And it has a list of things that if we all did those things, we would most likely sleep much better. And it's a common sense kinds of things. There are some you know, applications you can get on your phone. There are some uh, programs on the Internet that can help people wind down and fall asleep. It, I think, you know, the next five, ten years, as the technology becomes more and more user-friendly and more refined, and we've had some experience you know, with these apps and these programs, that technology, whereas now it may make it difficult to fall asleep, I think it will be a real asset both for, uh, for sleep and for anxiety. For parents out there who don't necessarily communicate with their kids as well as, as could be done because the kids are too busy on their cell phones and on social media, how do they identify and maybe prevent these mental health issues from cropping up that are being generated from that area, from social media and being bullied online and, and, and all those, those things that, that are relatively new to society? Oh, well, I, I'm going to take issue with the phrase too busy. I don't think families are too busy to love each other. And we're never too busy to decide to do something different. We're never too busy to spend time together doing a project, 
cooking dinner, looking at a movie, discussing current events, going for a walk. Uh, we're never too busy to be family. I think it's a myth, and it's unfortunate, that these forces, if you will, or these enticements that you were describing, you know, have the power that we attribute to them. We always have the decision-making power. We always can decide to do something different. And um, that's what I would encourage families to do. If, if there is a concern about any family member, whether it's a child or an adolescent, grandmother or grandfather, outline, you know, sit down with that person, share your observations, your concerns, um, get some help from whatever resource seems to be appropriate. And again, we talked about talking with the primary care physician or the pediatrician, uh, could be the school guidance counselor. But I, I really want to communicate clearly that, you know, Mental Health Awareness Month is not simply about or just about schizophrenia or depression or dementia or depression, anxiety. Mental health is something that we can practice day to day, minute to minute, in our homes, uh, in our offices, in the community, in our churches, our synagogues. It's really all about communication and empathy, uh, listening and sharing, and having the courage to approach somebody you care about with your observations in order to generate a conversation. Let me ask you about another area that I think you're well-versed in, and that's going to be the, the mental health of older folks. And, you know, as medicine improves... We're living longer, not necessarily wanting to live longer. I'm in my 50s, and my body's already starting to tell me, oh, you you probably should have taken better care of yourself when you were younger. Uh, Yeah, all those sports things and and all that. So what's going on in that set? Well, you're right. People are living longer, and I think many people, if not most people, are enjoying happy and fulfilling lives. But there is a unique set of problems that occur with our, our elderly, and part of it is that the body changes and we're not able to do what we used to be able to do. And not only does that cause us then to grieve, and the grief sometimes can be really, really intense. For example, if if somebody here in Colorado was accustomed to hiking and going on long hikes and being outdoors, and because of their illness, they're inside and maybe they're in a wheelchair or they're having to go to the doctor frequently, you know, that could cause that person to be depressed. And that's much more likely in the elderly than in our younger population. Similarly, changes in who is still living, whether it's other family members, neighbors, pets, children moving away. Families many times don't live in the same neighborhood anymore. And the social isolation that comes after retirement or if somebody is divorced or widowed. So it's important that we recognize that our, our grandparents, our aunts and our uncles, just like anyone else, is vulnerable to depression or anxiety, uh, substance abuse. We may not notice it or we, we may be accustomed that they've had been drinking too much for many years and it's just part of what the family has accepted. But it, it's important to recognize that if somebody is suffering and unhappy, an elderly person, that it's, we should reach out to them and share our observations with them and see what, what help we can find for them. Now, you mentioned uh, depression and anxiety. I also want to just ask you about uh, dementia, not necessarily Alzheimer's, but dementia. Because I I know I can speak from personal experience with the grandparent who was not in state and there was very little uh, stimulation in their life. They basically sat and watched TV and it seemed like their cognitive skills just slowly declined to the point where they were in full dementia. Is, is that something that you're dealing with as well, that you see in, in your practice? Oh, yes, yes. It's, um, it's not that TV causes the dementia, but certainly people who 
have dementia are much less involved in activities outside of the home, and they may sit in front of the TV as their main activity. You know, we all decline cognitively as we get older a little bit, but it's important to exercise and have social interactions and learn something new and and exercise your brain and exercise your heart in the sense of being involved, let's say, after retirement, finding something to do in a volunteer sense, participating in family functions. Well, I think the uh, the old adage of use it or lose it really does apply to the brain. I, I think that's something that people yes. need, need to get, you know, and, and there's, yes. there's, there's there's options out there people don't know about. So what would you say if you have that situation with a family member who you're seeing some sort of uh, cognitive decline, how would you try and reverse that situation? What What's the best approach? Well, again, your primary care physician is, I think, your, your first call. Um, there are medications, if a person does have dementia, there are medications that can improve the memory, improve the social functioning. You have to figure out if there is a secondary depression and which can be treated, and resources that you can put into place that will increase the person's socialization. And something that's also very important is to help the caretaker, the caregiver, if the person is living with a family member and becoming more and more demented and having less and less ability to care for themselves, one of the things that can happen to the caregiver is a secondary depression or caregiver burnout. They can be very anxious because trying to protect the individual from doing something unsafe, you know, that can be a tremendous stress on the caregiver. So a number of our um, elderly patients who have very elderly parents that they're caring for or other family members who, who may be ill. Uh, caregiver burnout and secondarily uh, depression you know, can also be a problem that needs to be brought to attention and treated. Very interesting. So, And I wouldn't have thought of that the caregiver has uh, that susceptibility to issues just from doing their work as that caregiver. So that's good advice. Yeah. And let me speak to that specifically. Sure. I, I have met Uh, and worked with some uh, devoted, uh, wonderful individuals who cared heroically for their elderly uh, parent in the home. And it was really inspiring to to sit with them and and hear the kind of care that they were giving, very loving and, and personal care. At the same time, these individuals were coming to see me for treatment of depression and anxiety. They had a lot of worries about the future and they would have financial problems and trying to balance their needs and, and their parents' needs and the family's needs and the finances. So, again, it, it's very important to reach out to whomever you feel can give you some guidance, some support, some help, whether it's the primary care physician, whether it's the Colorado Helpline, whether it's your pastor or your rabbi or the guidance counselor for your children or your aunt or your uncle who may have gone through something similar and and be able to share their experience. The, The point of Mental Health Awareness Month is to erase the stigma. We do not want to think about mental illness as anything bad or as a character defect or a a moral problem. And that's why I shared at the beginning of the show that, uh, you know, I, I lived with a man who had schizophrenia. And I know what it's like to be the family member of somebody who's suffering from a terrible mental illness. It really should and be no different if you have we, the flu. It's it's an illness. It's a, it should be treated the same and not uh, differentiated. I think. 
Exactly, exactly. And the good news is there's help that when we put the stigma aside and we open our eyes and, and look to see who can help, oh, my goodness, there's, there's lots of help out there. And, and you know, that's a, that's a good point right here to, to break. We're, we're just about running out of time. So, again, recapping, this is Mental Health Awareness Month. And as Dr. Ozeroff has graciously pointed out, there are places that you can reach out for help if you or someone you know, whether it be a friend, family member, even a coworker, really anyone who is, in, is depressed, going through a hard time, or just needs to talk especially people who, who may be contemplating suicide, there's a few options. So the Colorado Crisis Center can be reached uh, at 1-844-493-8255, or you can reach them online at www.coloradocrisiscenter.org. In fact, they even have uh, an online chat available if that's more comfortable for you. Uh, also, you can contact Community Reach Center at 303-853-3500. And here's even one more, the Metro Volunteers, which offers free mental health services. And their contact number is 1-844-380-6355. For Colorado Issues, I'm your host, David Venzetter.